to Revelation 13 and the infamous mark of the beast. Recently, I ran across the following. If 666 is the mark of the beast, then 1666 is the beast's area code. 00666 is the zip code of the beast. 666-666-6666 is his social security number. 1-800-666-0666 is his toll-free hotline. Route 666 is the highway of the beast. And I thought this was interesting. 667 is the street address of the beast's next-door neighbor. I thought that was a little funnier than you, you made it out to be. Revelation 13 is the much speculated upon mark of the beast, and it speaks of so much more. Today, we'll talk about the future sinister Antichrist. The chapter begins, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, in the Bible, the sea is symbolic of a vast ocean of people adrift. You know, we speak today of the sea of humanity. Here John sees a leader rise onto the world's political stage. In popular culture, this diabolical leader is most often referred to as the Antichrist. But throughout Scripture, he goes by numerous names. The Assyrian, the bloody and deceitful man, the crooked servant, the cruel one, the evil man, the little horn. The proud man, the spoiler, destroyer, extortioner, vile person, violent man, wicked one, willful king, worthless shepherd, lawless one, man of sin, son of perdition, unclean spirit, just to name a few. Here's a man so evil, so ruthless, so animalistic, John calls him by the unflattering term, the beast. And like most beasts, he travels in a pack. He heads a Satan-inspired gang of three. Chapter 13 spotlights the beast, then we'll see another beast, and then we'll see the image of the beast. I like to call them the Beastie Boys. <laughs> hey, the world is a jungle, and jungles are full of beasts. Be thankful that Jesus is the king of the jungle. At a time of his choosing, he'll hunt down these beastie boys. Now, the beast comes having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, this beast is an agent of the dragon we saw in chapter 12, Satan, with his heads and his horns. We're told, now the beast when I saw, which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now here's in a ferocious beast, and it harkens back, the text harkens back to Daniel 7. There the prophet was shown 2,500 years of Gentile world domination. He saw the lion of Babylon, followed by the bear of Persia than the leopard of Greece. Daniel also saw a final Gentile kingdom, a beast, dreadful and terrible. 
which speaks of Rome, but even more than Rome, it speaks of a future revival of the Roman Empire. It had ten horns, Daniel said, and a little horn. Among them, this little horn was a world leader who defies God. The beast of chapter 13 is Daniel's little horn. He has Babylon's swagger, Persia's strength, Greece's speed. This beast is the king of a last day's kingdom. And he rules a revival of ancient Rome, a European superstate. And today, for the first time in 1,400 years, we have just such an entity. Rent a car in Madrid, drive it to Rome, then Paris, then Berlin, then Prague, then on to Budapest. You won't have to stop at a border. And you can pay for your meals and your lodging with a single currency, the euro. Welcome to the European Union. Here John sees a future leader. He has seven heads which refer to this Roman superstate. And his ten horns are, are nation states that rise from this Rome. His power and authority are from the dragon or Satan. This is the ruler who opposes God in the last days. You know, ironically, Jesus has been faithfully knocking at the door of every human heart for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has timeless, eternal answers, not just temporary patches. But most folks keep their door bolted and Jesus on the outside. Yet when this beast knocks, they'll open. Verse 3 reveals why the beast will be so persuasive. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. What if John Kennedy had walked out of Parkland Hospital there in Dallas, surviving the bullet that had lodged into his brain? It would be held a miracle, wouldn't it? And this is what's going to raise the approval ratings of the beast. He'll recover from a potentially lethal head wound, Perhaps an assassin's bullet. Notice verse 3 doesn't say the beast rises from the dead. Nowhere in the Bible does Satan have the power over death. It's as if he had risen from the dead. It's as if he had been mortally wounded. This might just seem to be a miracle, yet it does the trick. His recovery rockets him to superstar status. Zechariah 11 verse 17 speaks of his injuries his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The Antichrist uses, loses the use of his arm and his eye. You know, Jesus has lost far more for, for us, and the wounds of his crucifixion were no illusion. Yet the world has and will ignore his scars while they run after this beast. Verse 4 tells us, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And this has been Satan's ambition from the beginning, from his days as heaven's choir boy. He's wanted men to worship him. Now the beast gives him what he wants. You know, as Jesus draws people to the Father, the beast captures and enslaves souls to Satan. We're told, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. 
And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And here's that time frame we saw in the last two chapters, 42 months or 1,260 days or the last three and a half years of the final seven years of great tribulation. Recall Revelation 6 through 19 records God's judgment of the world during the final seven-year period before Jesus' return. We call it the Great Tribulation. Chapters 12 and 13 are a parenthesis that zeroes in on events that occur at the halfway point of that last seven years. See, up until now, the Antichrist has preached tolerance. He solved mankind's problems. World religions are now cooperating. You can imagine this in the near distant future. Jews and Muslims are living in harmony. Perhaps they are even coexisting on the Temple Mount. After these narrow-minded Christians are taken in the rapture, the Antichrist can sell his coexist theology. He'll probably explain the rapture as an evolutionary leap forward that eliminated all those bigoted Christians. The world will be poised for a new age. But then at the halftime of this final seven years, the beast will show his fangs. He's not the peaceful ruler he claimed to be. He'll become the personification of evil and murder God's two witnesses in the streets. We saw streets of Jerusalem. We saw back in chapter 11. Then he'll set up an image of himself in the temple and require the world to worship him. Matthew 24 calls it the abomination of desolation. According to Revelation 12, it's after this blasphemy that war erupts in heaven. The devil gets the boot and in retaliation, Satan attacks God's people, the Jews. You know, there's a quote that's fitting here. It's by revolutionary war leader William Penn. He said, those who will not be governed by God will be governed by tyrants. Never in history is this more applicable than the 42 months prior to Jesus' return. Under the beast, the world will be ruled by pure evil. Verse 6 reveals more. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and notice, even those who dwell in heaven. Suddenly, this future Fuhrer opposes everything that's of God. He trashes God's name, God's temple. He'll even look to heaven and ridicule Christ's church. And as he attacks those who missed the rapture before deciding to follow Jesus, we're told, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. We've talked about these tribulation saints. They are the ones that are now in his crosshairs. And here's a great proof text for the pre-trib rapture of the church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Prevail in Matthew 16 is the same Greek word as overcome here in Revelation 13. Thus here the Antichrist prevails against the saints. Yet Jesus said the gates of Hades should never prevail against the church. That means the saints here in verse 6 aren't part of the church. I believe these are the folks that are saved in the tribulation while the church is with Jesus in heaven. Notice an authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beast's rule will be global. 
You know what? Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and the Caesars and Genghis Khan and Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin all failed to accomplish a world dictatorship this ruler achieves. Recall the story of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. It was the first attempt at globalism. Nimrod brought culture and commerce and language and government, even religion, under one big tent. Nimrod was a unifier of mankind, yet he had ulterior motives, did he not? He wanted to sub himself for the Savior and be worshipped as a god. Nimrod defied the true God's decree to scatter and multiply, and the world is still under that command. Nothing is wrong with the cooperation of nations. The UN is not inherently evil. But when efforts are made to abolish national boundaries and consolidate governments, we should question the motive. For the Antichrist, we're told, will seize authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're told in verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The world will worship the beast, and life will get very, very hard for those who don't. It'll take great patience and faith. Now remember, chapter 13 isn't just about the beast, but the beastie boys. That's why verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, the second beast is the Antichrist ecclesiastical sidekick. He's a religious leader who appears gentle, gentle as a lamb, but he speaks the threats and lies of the dragon or Satan. You remember Jesus had a forerunner. John the Baptist paved the way for Messiah. The second beast here will pave the way for the first. He'll give religious sanction to the Antichrist. Imagine this man in the world's great cathedrals and mosques and temples, encouraging people to lay aside their differences and rally together under one banner. This will be a spiel. Verse 12 tells us more. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This man will become the high priest of heresy and apostasy. Later in Revelation, he's also called the false prophet. He performs great signs, John says, so that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. The priest of the beast even works miracles. Recall Satan is a deceiver. He doesn't just do miracles, but replicates biblical miracles. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 predicts that Elijah will appear before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is why the beast here calls down fire. He's not an Elvis impersonator. He's an Elijah impersonator. Malachi predicts that Elijah will precede Messiah. And this guy falsely claims to be him. Verse 14. 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And here is where the plot thickens. When we think of idolatry, we think of a statue or a trinket sitting on someone's mantle. But here is an animated image, the image of the beast. It has breath, notice. It speaks. It discerns worship. It enforces allegiance. It executes the people who refuse to bow to the beast. Here is idolatry gone high tech. What is this third beastie boy? We're not sure. But today's technology provides all kinds of possibilities. Is it a touch-sensitive screen? Is it a computer-generated hologram? Is it a robot with artificial intelligence? Imagine millions of computer users on the web interacting with this image. Idolatry will go online. John here speaks of the image of the beast, and he continues in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. A hundred years ago, this would make very little sense, but not today. In 2020, this kind of technology is commonplace. Money and data are constantly being passed electronically. In a cash-based society, you could never control commerce by a mark on your body. But today, cash is a relic of the past. My kids no longer even carry cash. Maybe that's just when they're around me expecting me to pay for everything. But, <laughs> but in the future, buying and selling will all be done digitally. You know, do the run the Reagan, you know, the road race up in Snellville. And you put a microchip in your shoe. That's what records your time. Soon they'll be injecting silicone chips under a baby's skin to track the child. And if you've ever momentarily lost your child in a crowded store, you realize that's really not a bad idea. There's an upside to that. This technology makes sense. It isn't intrinsically evil. But this is what the Antichrist will use to blackmail the world into worshiping him. To get the mark, you'll have to bow. You'll have to pledge allegiance to the beast. And without this mark of loyalty, you won't be allowed in the Kroger or to buy anything from the Walmart. This will force excruciating choices. Stand for Jesus or your family starves. What will it be? I don't want to be here when that kind of choosing starts. Finally, verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Now, if we gave an award for the one Bible verse that has drawn the most speculation, 
I have no doubt it would go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Everyone from Nero to Hitler to Kennedy to Kissinger to Gorbachev to Clinton to Tony Blair to Obama have somehow been associated with the number 666. Yet let me introduce you to a new idea perhaps. Throughout the Bible, six is the number of man. It's one less than seven, the number of God's perfection. And man at his best always falls short of God's ideal. Yet next to Jesus, the one man in the Bible who may have come closest was King Solomon. You remember what Jesus said of King Solomon in Luke 12, verse 17. He compared him to the lilies and said, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In Luke 11, verse 31, Jesus applauded the wisdom of Solomon. In the Old Testament, King Solomon was the wisest of the wise. He was the epitome of human achievement. Now remember, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, and there's only one other place in the Scripture where this number 666 appears. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 13 lists Solomon's yearly allotment of gold as 666 talents. There's another connection between Solomon and the number 666. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn that when you looked at the throne of Solomon, you saw six lions on the left, six steps down the center, and six lions on the right. In essence, you saw 666. And here's my suggestion. When you think of the Antichrist, don't think of some kind of Darth Vader character or Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler. Think of King Solomon. There's lots of parallels. David was a man of war, and because of it, he wasn't allowed to build the temple. Solomon was a man of peace and a temple builder. And that's how the beast starts. He builds a false peace, and he also constructs the temple. Both men are admired for their wisdom. Both will start out as God-fearing leaders, but eventually lead people into idolatry. Both will amass great fortunes. The parallels are numerous. Suffice it to say, the beast doesn't show his fangs until he has the world in his clutches. Evil is not so easily identified. And the Antichrist will be further proof that man apart from God, even at his wisest, even at his most refined is still corrupt to the core and brazenly rebellious. In the end, the great human hope, this leader, will turn beastly. Chapter 13 closes with the evil Antichrist on top of the world. But remember, Jesus is the king of the beasts. If you remove chapters 11 through 14 from Revelation, it would be like watching a football game without a program. Oh, you'd enjoy the action, but you couldn't identify any of the players. These chapters, 11 through 14, are a roster of the end times. The rebel forces, we've seen, they include the dragon, the beast, and his accomplice, the false prophet. Whereas God's troops include the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Two Jerusalem witnesses in Jerusalem who were in the streets of Jerusalem, three angelic messengers, 
one like the Son of Man who's carrying a sharp sickle and the armies of heaven. And those get revealed to us in chapter 14. Chapter 13 focuses on the bad guys, the Beastie Boys. And like any good roster, it lists their jersey number, 666. Chapter 14 lists God's team. And it's only fitting that the first person on God's team that's listed is our best player, our captain, our coach, our manager, our team owner, everything rolled into one. John begins chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. John sees Jesus. And after all, this book is the revelation of Jesus, is it not? It's not the revelation of the beast or the seals or the trumpets or 666. All too often we get caught up in the peripherals and we miss Jesus. This book is about Jesus. And Jesus is no longer the humble Galilean preacher who walked dusty trails in first century Israel. He is now king of kings and lord of lords. He is now glorified and exalted and today all creation is under his feet. Here John sees Jesus as the lamb, but notice his posture and his place. He is standing on Mount Zion. That Jesus is standing tells us a lot. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, we're told what the Father God says to his son Jesus. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, for nearly 2,000 years now, that's where Jesus has been. Sitting at God's right hand. But here he stands to his feet. He is finally ready to stride and ride and make war with this wicked world. And notice where Jesus stands. He is on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of the hills of Jerusalem. Over time, Zion became the name for the entire capital city. John sees the Lamb standing in Jerusalem, the place of kings. For his intent is to rule. And it's no accident he has returned to the scene of the crime. For Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified. And this is God's issue with this rebellious planet. The world mocks and despises the cross of Christ. He bled for us. Why won't we be led by him? Don't get upset when this chapter speaks of hell and blood and judgment. What would you think if you sacrificed your only son for me and then I turned around and spit in his face? What would you think? What would I deserve? God is just and righteous in all he does. Revelation 14 verse 1 is such a powerful picture. It needs to shape how we think of Jesus today. See, one day soon, the lamb will stand where he once was slaughtered. He'll be glorified where he was crucified. He'll be worshipped where he was hated. He will rule from a throne, from the very place he hung from a tree. Where Jesus showed mercy, he will bring justice. When you think of the Jesus in your future, the Jesus every man will meet and face and one day bow before, don't think of Mary's infant. 
or Jesus washing his disciples' feet, or Jesus silent before his accusers. Think of Jesus in all his regal glory, standing on Mount Zion, ready to put his foot down in judgment. And yet before this judgment, one last call to repent goes out. Chapter 14, I call it the last chance chapter. It's a last call for salvation. You know, today the church preaches the gospel. But in the last days, God has other messengers. For one, verse 1, with him, 144,000. We met them in chapter 7. These were Jews, 12,000 from each of Israel's 12 tribes. As chapter 13 closes, worshipers of the beast have their allegiance sealed in their right hand or in their forehead with a mark, the number 666. But there's a godly antithesis to this. God's witnesses are dearer to him than Satan's are to him. So they're sealed not with a number, but God's witnesses will have his father's name written on their foreheads. God will put his name on them. And then verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven. The scene now shifts from Mount Zion back to heaven. John hears a voice. It's like the voice of many waters, like a roaring waterfall, and like the voice of a loud thunder, the boom of a thunderclap. Recall in chapter 1, this is how John described the voice of Jesus. He speaks with authority. His voice drowns out all other opinions. He says, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now the lamb and the 144,000 witnesses are standing on Mount Zion. So who is this singing in heaven? These are the tribulation saints who were martyred for their faith during this terrible time. The 144,000 sing with them since they've tasted what the martyrs will endure. In chapter 6, remember these saints were the ones who asked, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now they're no longer asking that question. The avenging is about to occur. They're now singing. The long sought for judgment is about to begin. The vast majority of heaven's population, that is the church, was spared great tribulation. That's why only the 144,000 witnesses and these martyrs can sing this song. And John says of the 144,000, these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. Apparently these witnesses will be men on a mission. They lack the time for marriage or family. I mean, how can you celebrate an anniversary or coach a little league team when God is about to ready the world for judgment? This is God's last call. The eternal destiny of men hang in the balance. God's witnesses need to be single-minded, pledged to preach, not play. This will be different from today. John adds, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Surely the 144,000 will live at a different time and minister under different conditions. But this is something that should be true of us all. We all need to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men. 
being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The 144,000 Jews were saved at the beginning of God's last call. They were the first fruits of the final harvest. Now they lead others to salvation toward the end. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. These, these are impeccable witnesses in perilous times. You know, like in baseball, your best pitcher is your closer. And here God raises up an army of closers for a last call. But that's not all. That's not God's only method of last day's evangelism. As the clock winds down, as time is running out, the lamb pulls out all stops. Notice verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And this should speak volumes to us. You know, one day, God is going to use angels to proclaim the good news. And I'll bet angels are never scared of speaking up. I'll, I'll bet they never are too busy to share their faith. I'll bet. They're far more efficient than us. Yet, you know, for right now, Jesus loves us. And he wants us to share in the joy of seeing other people come to know him. It's amazing to me that God sees value in using folks saved by grace to share his grace. While we have the privilege, let's be about the task. Yet once the church goes up, God uses angels to proclaim his will and word. Like the airplane that pulls the banners, you know, along the beach. The angel in verse 6 buzzes the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel. The Lamb's last call is delivered by 144,000 Jews, the two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem, and now three angels. Verse 8 tells us about another. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. As Jerusalem will be the headquarters of God's kingdom on earth, Babylon has always been Satan's headquarters. You see, the Bible is a tale of two cities. Here the second angel proclaims the crumbling of Satan's kingdom. The devil's days are numbered in essence. And then verse 9, a third angel followed them. Notice the first angel shared God's salvation. The second, Satan's devastation. Now the third warns of the sinner's destination. For this angel is saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Usually God tempers his judgments with mercy. But not here. People who resist the witness of the church and these angels, and now God's last call, are sentenced to the full strength, the 100 proof, the undiluted wrath of God. And apparently the final straw is when they receive the mark of the beast in their forehead or in their hand. 
whether the damning mark is a barcode or a microchip or maybe a vein scan or an infrared tattoo or some technology not yet invented, we can speculate. It's certainly more than just a convenient commerce. It's paid for by a pledge of allegiance to the beast. Rather than trust in Jesus Christ, people will put their faith in the Antichrist and it will be the final rejection of God's mercy. This third angel warns, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, up until now, John's vision has shown us the glories of heaven and God's judgments on earth. But now, John gives us a glimpse of the torments of hell. And yet, hell isn't a message we hear a lot about today, is it? I mean, some churches downplay the idea of a literal hell. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consequences of millions. This third angel tries to convince mankind that hell is real. John tells us people in hell are tormented by fire, by hot coals, by stifling smoke. In verse 10, the word brimstone refers to sulfur flashes. Think of the flash pots at a rock concert. You're bombarded with little mini explosions for eternity. Hell is like living in the mouth of an erupting volcano. The heat is unbearable. Its flames blister and burn. Layers of soot cause acute suffocation. Everybody in hell gropes for air like a person with chronic COPD. And notice the punishment is for eternity. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Is it any wonder hell's residents have no rest day or night? Hell is like a hemorrhoid attack in a world without preparation age. Everybody is restless and stressed. Everyone in hell will be restless with remorse. You know, it's been said, one of the horrors of hell is the undying memory of a misspent life. What regret. And hell is a place void of hope. Your status never changes. In Dante's Inferno, a sign over hell reads, He who enters abandons all hope. And the worst of hell's torments is that it all occurs in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. I interpret that to mean while folks agonize in hell, they're aware of what's happening in heaven. They're aware of the presence of the Lamb and those in heaven. It's like a one-way glass. Residents of hell see into heaven, but heaven doesn't see into hell. Imagine being in torment all the while gawking at pleasures you'll never enjoy. This third angel warns the world of a literal hell. And if you love people, you'll warn them too. 
Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. See, there's no rest in hell. But heaven's like a hammock. Believe in Jesus and you'll rest forever. We'll have all eternity to rest, friends, but only a few short hours left to do the will of God. If you believe in a literal hell, how can you be nonchalant about people going there? Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here's King Jesus, but he's got a swing blade in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. This is the final harvest just before the last battle. One final surge of souls will give their lives to Jesus. This first thrust of the sickle is a harvest, but the second is an act of judgment. For then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. You could call him the grim reaper. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. You know, spiritually speaking, sin is like fruit. Let it hang around and it ripens for judgment. All sin has to be judged. Verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And in the wine press, the grapes are crushed and squished and stomped. The great wine press is an idiom here for God's judgment. And then verse 20. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Notice it's not wine that results from this pressing, it's blood. For Jesus crushes the rebels who defy his rule. That's where sin is headed. That's where sin is leading. That's where your rejection of Jesus is taking you. Toward judgment. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a time of mercy where God is extending mercy to us. Don't let it slip through your hands. This is all leading to a final judgment that's called the battle of Armageddon where the blood of evil men will fill up a valley, we're told, 1,600 furlongs or 200 miles long. In the steep places, the blood will rise to the horse's bridle. It's interesting, 200 miles is the approximate length of the Holy Land, from the Golan Heights in the north to the Dead Sea in the south, the 1,600 furlongs. 
John foresees the day when the valleys of Israel and Judah will become a bloodstained battlefield. And we'll talk about it more in the next few chapters. Father, we thank you.